0: Hello, and welcome to Fangraphs Audio, episode 896. On this edition of the podcast, we welcome San Francisco Giants manager Gabe Kapler to the show. He joins David Lorela to discuss things like getting to work with his favorite baseball player in Fred McGriff, and sympathizing with Kevin Cash when it comes to making difficult in-game decisions. They also discuss the Giants' season, which was an improvement despite them narrowly missing the playoffs.
1: If you don't get to the postseason, you're going you're gonna to have some degree of disappointment. And I, and I can tell you that, that I did and we did. But it wasn't without it's, its real bright spots this season. And I think there was a lot of development occurring and already looking forward to, to spring training and getting back out there.
0: After that, Ben Clemens and Eric Longenhagen briefly discussed the Cy Young Award winners before attempting to talk about the recent players to be named later. And I do mean all of the recent players to be named later. The pair consider things like Matt Waldron's appeal, what the giant strategy is with players like Jason Vosler, and what Josh Naylor's future may look like.
2: Yeah. Is there anybody from that trade who you think, now that they're on a new team, has, like, who you're interested in their development now moving forward? Because that's why I mentioned Quantrill first, because I'm kind of interested to see what Cleveland does developmentally with him.
3: I always want Josh Naylor to be better than he is. I don't know that
0: he's going to be, but I think he makes a lot of sense for the Indians to find out. Yeah. Fangraph's audio is made possible by our listeners and supporters. Your memberships and donations allow us to do things like interview Major League Managers and discuss the many players who have now been named. We appreciate your help. Enjoy the show.
4: Hey, baseball fans, this is David Lorela. My guest on this segment is Gabe Kapler, the manager of the San Francisco Giants. I don't think he needs more introduction than that. And I'm going to start here by stealing Rob Nyer's question he asks everybody on Sabercast when he starts his interviews, which is, Gabe, what is your earliest baseball memory?
1: Yeah, thanks, David. And obviously really good to be with you and have this time with you. My earliest baseball memory is is walking to the park on Saturday mornings probably around age 5 or 6 and at that point probably walking with my older brother just to a city park down the street from my house in cleats and 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 full uniform and just completely excited to get there and spend the entire Saturday from early morning until late afternoon when the sun went down playing my game with the park league and then playing over the line between the fields during the day and so the, the entire day was pretty much taken up by by baseball and then uh, when I got home I had a, a red plastic bat in my hand and a plastic ball and and was always finding different ways to to simulate those games at the park uh because there was nothing like playing baseball as as a kid with nothing nothing on the line and it, it was just for purely for fun
4: and this was in the Los Angeles area You grew up not too far from Dodger Stadium. They won a few World Series as you were growing up. But apparently, I I guess I know from talking to you before, you actually were not a Dodgers fan.
1: That's right. Um, I I wasn't a Dodgers fan. I was a a Toronto Blue Jays fan. And just kind of taking you back to that recreational park league. I was on a ball team. I think it was the first team I was ever on. And we wore the powder blue Toronto Blue Jays uniforms with the bird on the chest. And I guess that drew me to the 1980s Blue Jays teams. It was George Bell and Jesse Barfield and Tony Fernandez and later on Kelly Gruber. And then the guy who became my my favorite baseball player, Fred McGriff, and uh, got to meet the crime dog later and, and, and got to actually work with him when he was in Tampa in 2009 and 2010. And Thought it was uh, it was quite a thrill to have uh, pictures of of McGriff up on up on my walls in, in the form of posters, and then ultimately get to get to work with him as a teammate. So that was that was pretty special.
4: I'm guessing, Gabe, that you were probably a crime dog belongs in the Hall of Fame guy. <laughs>
1: <laughs> well, it, that, it's a tough one. He's he's pretty borderline. He had some some really uh, really special years and had some really good counting stats. And at the same time, even me, who was like, I was fascinated by McGriff. He, he never really stood out as dominating to me. He was just like an excellent, excellent perennial all-star caliber baseball player, but never the guy that kind of ruled, ruled the league for me. So I, I think that would require a little bit more of a deep dive on my part. But um, while I, I love, I love Fred McGriff, I'm not, I'm not sure if, if I, if I would, pound the table for him to be in the hall of fame
4: and you were a blue jays fan Um, i understand your brother was a yankees fan which brings me to you played for the red sox when they beat the yankees in 2004 but maybe more meaningfully you were with the red sox in 2003 when brady little left pedro martinez in the game too long history shows a few weeks ago you watched a fellow big league manager arguably pull his starter too soon in the World Series. What, what are your thoughts on that juxtaposition?
1: Yeah, so I, I think first and foremost, I thought Grady was a, a good manager and I, I really enjoyed playing for him. I, I think he had a very difficult decision in, in what to do with, with Pedro in that moment. You know, for me at the time, Pedro was, was certainly tiring. That doesn't mean it was it was uh, the right or the wrong decision to to leave him in that game, but certainly I think there's a lot of scrutiny on on managers for decisions, and the thing that determines the the quarter of, of public opinion is essentially that the outcome. So obviously felt for for Grady at that time. I actually remember clearly him walking around the Yankees visiting clubhouse and shaking everybody's hand after that game. A lot of tears in that clubhouse. A lot of disappointment. Obviously. Um, one of the most crushing losses in Red Sox history. And and Grady was, was squarely in the middle of that and certainly have a better understanding of what that feels like having managed for the last three years in the major leagues. Uh, with respect to cash, like one of the things that, that I know about Kevin is that he takes a tremendous amount of pride in planning pregame and looking for ways he might make less of an emotional decision during the game but then also does a tremendous job of using his eyes and trust and trusting his instinct. I think Kevin's a great manager, and I think he had a really tough decision to to make with Snell. He had prepared for that moment. He used his gut and he used what he had thought about pregame to make that decision. And I respect that he had the courage to make what he knew would be a very unpopular decision if it, if it didn't go his way. I can I can't swear that I would have made the same decision. as I was watching the game, I, I thought Snell was doing a nice job, but can't tell you how much how much I understand that you don't really know until you pull back the curtain. So I have a lot of respect for for Grady and a lot of respect for for cash and I thought they were both good baseball managers.
4: The team that you managed, Gabe, just missed making the playoffs this year. Looking back, just what type of season did the Giants have? Was it a success or was it a disappointment?
1: I thought there was a, a lot of a lot of development that occurred this this past season, and we saw some veteran players have the best seasons, at least in recent memory. In, in Brandon Belt and Brandon Crawford, both of them had had great years, and, and Belt went through some stretches where he looked like he was the best hitter in baseball, just an absolute assassin at the plate. And then we had some young players have some really important development, particularly in the bullpen. Uh, Caleb Berger stands out to me uh, as a guy who's going to be a very good major league reliever for, for quite some time. He may he may have his ups and downs. I, I don't doubt that he will, but he's a strike thrower whose velocity crept up as the season went on, showed to be extremely durable. He also He also has a history of being a starting pitcher, so while he took some steps forward in, in the bullpen, I don't think there's that's the only path to him being a, a good major leaguer. But I, I could go through our roster and talk about the ways that we took steps forward. At the end of the day, uh, it was incredibly disappointing to be right there at the very end and, and, and to not not get in. I thought we were a good enough team to make that happen. And uh, we had some things go down in the, in the last couple days of the season that you know could have bounced a different way and, and and look like if you don't get to the postseason, you're gonna you're gonna have some degree of disappointment and i and i can tell you that that i did and we did but it wasn't without it's it's real bright spots this season and i think there was a lot of development occurred and already looking forward to to spring training and getting back out there
4: my next question gabe circles back to an interview that we did all the way back in 2007 and I will see if I can read this verbatim in my notes. We're talking about potential. You told me everybody reaches their potential because it is defined as the highest level you can achieve, and that's what happens in real life. You do what you're capable of. Now, Gabe, that you have all these years of player development experience, do you feel the same way?
1: I mean, maybe if I if I put it as black and white as as I did right there, I would say part of my own personal development is understanding that there there are some some shades of gray. With respect to potential, I think that usually what we're talking about is what could happen going forward instead of what has happened looking back. And when we're talking about a young player that that is still developing, you know, potential is just what we think the best case scenario could be for that player. And as a as somebody with player development background as, as a farm director and also as a former minor league manager really really devoted to player development I can tell you that our jobs is to try to get every ounce of ability out of that player and if we're able to do that then in, in theory we help them reach their potential.
4: And you of course are managing this year in a very unique season one thing that you saw maybe not quite so much on your club but from other clubs, young players came up to the major leagues for maybe a cup of coffee or even more who in a quote unquote normal season may not have played you know above double a everybody was of course stuck in you know their their development was in in caps you know it was an alternate size rather than game action what did we learn from all
1: of that well i think we learned a lot and and i think the thing that stands out to me is that you're not going to learn the same thing from every player coming up. But what we do know looking back is that um, at all our alternate sites, we were dependent on simulating high level game action. And I think we were able to do that. Well, I think clubs around the league were able to do that. Well, it's not the same as seeing somebody across the field in a different uniform. And in, in many cases, just being driven by wanting to beat, that other club, but I think we did a nice job through use of technology, um, whether that be to kind of track spin or or velocity, both for for hitters and for pitchers, but also just through natural competition that we set up. I think we were able to achieve development, and I think that's what we set set out to do.
4: What are your thoughts on the minor league contraction that we are seeing?
1: Ooh, tough. So I love the minor leagues and and I loved minor league baseball every step of the way. I I feel like I was introduced to the country and in particular, the the South and and the Northeast through minor league baseball in the New York Penn League and the Southern League and the South Atlantic League and the Florida State League. So I have a strong love and I I really even enjoyed the long bus rides and the camaraderie and all of that. At the same time, I understand uh, this is this is a business. Uh, understand that we're in very difficult times as a a society, as a country, and as an industry, and I understand difficult decisions need to be made.
4: It's pretty well known, Gabe, that you are a proponent of analytics. You have been for a good many years. So while they're important, do they actually play a large role in a manager's day-to-day job?
1: So... (laughs) Analytics for me is and will always be just, just information. So if you, you took the grades of scouts, the 20 to 80 scale, you lined them up on a spreadsheet, you're going to call that analytics too. So I don't think that anybody would deny the value in a, a scouting report. I don't think anybody would deny the value of a batting average or an on-base percentage, or or any metric that you, that you'd want to point to, whether it be stuff like TrackMan data, or or even just tracking evaluations of a major league staff, all of that information is valuable. I still feel that way, and I, and I think one of the ways that that I've grown as as a baseball person over the last couple of years is just really factoring in all of it and not making it so black and white. I think there's a lot of nuance to this, and I think I was more certain, and interestingly, I don't feel like I had any reason to be five years ago than I am today. I feel like I have less certainty and I'm very comfortable in that space.
4: As a player, you presumably enjoyed the challenges of facing certain pitchers, maybe because of relationships, maybe because of how talented they were. To what extent does that happen as a manager you know, you're matching wits with a Dave Roberts, a Dusty Baker, a Jace Tinkler.
1: Uh, that's great. I think that's a really interesting question, one that I, I hadn't thought about. I, I mean, I I don't it, it doesn't feel the same as let's say like going up against Roger Clemens by way of example. Um you're you know, you're taking a at bat against Pedro Martinez or or Clayton Kershot. I don't I don't find those the two things to be perfectly analogous. I can tell you there's a thrill to be in the opposing dugout um, with, with Dusty Baker on the other side, you know, certainly there are some managers that I have a ton of respect for. I thought Jace, you mentioned Jace Tingler, thought I did a tremendous job this year. Really enjoyed watching him manage baseball games and thought he was bold and aggressive and, and creative and really appreciated the decisions he made. I, every time I'm in a dugout, I look across the way and I generally know where the manager has been and, and what he's accomplished in, in his career. Generally speaking, in order to, to be a major league manager, your resume has to be pretty impressive and, and oftentimes extensive. So I always have a lot of respect and enjoy enjoy just kind of knowing about the manager across the way.
4: One last last thing, and I think this is fairly important. We've been talking baseball. it's It's the world we live in, but the greater world we live in is well, it's the, it's the greater world. When you hear people say things like stick to baseball and leave social justice you know, out of the conversation, you know, what do you think of that?
1: Yeah. So the first thing I'll say is I respect and feel for, have a lot of empathy for players and, and fans, executives, and, and coaches who, who really want to stay neutral. They, they don't want to mix up baseball and things like, like social justice. And at the same time, I know that, that Black people have been asking us to, to use our voices and to, to amplify their voices and to fight with them and, and be, be allies. And so while, I, like I said, I, I do empathize with the, the, the want to, to not have these things creep into to baseball. I just don't think that it's a choice anymore. We are public figures. We wear Major League Baseball uniforms. That means we have powerful voices and voices that can move the needle. And I'm not going to speak for anybody else. I feel an obligation to use my voice and to try to create change. And and I'm going to continue to do that.
4: And would you like your players to do the same thing or is that simply their choice?
1: I think that's a, a nuanced question and, and probably a topic we could spend a lot of time on. I think that my message to our players is we, we will support you speaking up and we are going to celebrate you for, for using your platform to do good work.
4: Wise words. That was Gabe Kapler. This is David Lorela and we will move on to the next segment.
3: I am Ben Clemens, joined today by lead prospect analyst Eric Longenhagen. Hey Eric, how's it going?
2: Howdy Ben, it's going pretty uh pretty well. That time of year in Arizona where it's just incredible. And uh actually gotten out to the field a couple times over the last week. So it's been like a hell year without without baseball for me for the most part, but got a few gasps in the last couple weeks of instructs.
3: Yeah. It's a nice to be able to watch some baseball in person, I'm jealous.
2: Yeah, there's something that's been sort of therapeutic about it, especially over the last two weeks, because it's just something to fixate on. And it's really quiet and empty and people are being safe and the protocols for folks to get in the few places that I've been allowed and even technically not not really allowed at some of them, but just (laughs) um, able to stand in a a public place and kind of watch the baseball game, not necessarily sit in a scout section or anything, but just tolerated, perhaps. Yeah, my presence is is tolerated, but it has been nice.
3: So on the day we're recording this, the Cy Young Awards have been announced, and I don't think there was much of a surprise in the AL, but I guess we should just acknowledge that Shane Bieber won it. Shane Bieber was the best pitcher in the AL, so that, that seems fair.
2: Yep. He was selected unanimously, which I think is, I forget who it was, I think it was Alden Gonzalez who tweeted, hey, at least we can all evaluate a situation and... Agree on something unanimously, which is, <laughs> yeah, sentiment that I agree with. That's he was dominant. He's absolutely incredible. Good for um, Shane Bieber. And I think there was there's an effectively wild episode from a couple months ago where after talking to like Bieber's agent, who is here in Tempe a lot, seeing players, works for uh, Drew Rosenhaus's agency. Mm-hmm. You know, spoke with him and talked about some of how Bieber became. At least, in my opinion, you know, a guy who was like a strike thrower who had a down junior year at UC Santa Barbara to an absolute monster, and then in the NL, Trevor Bauer won. And you know, I did not look and and see. I just got back from the field not long ago, so I haven't looked to see what how the voting shook out for that. But it was much closer in the in the NL. And so, congrats to to Shane Bieber and and Trevor Bauer, both deserving of this year's hardware, in my opinion.
3: Yeah, absolutely. I think uh, I think you couldn't have gone wrong with either Darvish or DeGrom, who were right, you know, not far behind him. It was a very close race. It looks like Bauer got two hundred points of votes to Darvish's 123, and that's actually closer than you think in Cy Young. He did get twenty-seven of the thirty first place votes, so he was comfortably ahead, but okay. you don't need to switch too many of those to start making it a little bit closer. But all three of those guys had great seasons. And so I would have been happy with any of them winning.
2: It's been a long time since I've seen Darvish pitch in person. I certainly have not seen him operating like he did this year where he was sort of mixing and matching pitches in whatever count. Didn't really matter. He's just sort of like a slot machine almost. <laughs> but I did see Bauer late in 2019 after, as you've written, he had the the huge uptick in spin rate. And I've got like 50 high-speed, you know, well-zoomed-in, 1,000 frames per second clips of the baseball leaving his hand. <laughs> um, and I've seen DeGrom- I saw DeGrom in person last year too. And both of them, it's just some of, um, among the best stuff I've ever seen in person. I saw, you know, Pirates prospect Garrett Cole. I saw Steven Strasburg at A, and those guys are right up there too. But, but yeah, Bowers' stuff is insane. DeGrom's stuff is insane. And it doesn't surprise me that those guys are just going to be at the, at the top of this voting here, like for the next couple of years, probably.
3: Yeah. When I lived in New York, whenever I was going to a random Mets game, I would make sure to go on a DeGrom start or if I possibly could. I've seen him live a lot and it never stops being fun.
2: I think the reason that I put the put the bat signal up in the Fangraph Slack uh, to talk on this episode of the pod was to to go through some of the trades that have been completed over the last week or so with some of the players to be named later. Uh, changing teams from the deadline deals. Not all of them were deadline deals, but we did see during the course of the summer, many trades were completed with a player to be named later because it was a way of circumventing the roster rules that MLB put in place, which said that, hey, anyone who's traded has to be on your alternate site's roster or on your big league roster. So,
3: Right, it took all of a week for baseball teams to find a way around it.
2: <laughs> right, <laughs> so... Some of those trades, some of the names from those trades were known, and some of them were known and reported. Some of them were known and not reported, as we'll talk about in a second. There's just one specific guy for which that is true. But uh, they have all been officially... I think at this point I used to have a running list of all the players to be named later that needed to like be traded officially, be named, I guess, is the verb, the active verb. And so I wanted to see, are there any of the names... As, as a prospect layperson, as far as, you know, some of these guys are concerned, is there anybody who you see on the transaction log that sticks out to you who you were already aware of, Ben?
3: I'm hoping that you're about to tell me that, but <laughs> I don't think so. All right. I'm just curious.
2: I'm just curious if, like, you knew who AJ Graffanino was. Can you make it any assumptions about AJ Graffanino?
3: That he's Tony's son? Yeah. I mean, that, that seems like a layup. I've never heard that name before, but I... Yep. I do not know if he's a prospect of note. So is he a prospect of note?
2: Right. So the Braves traded two players to Baltimore for Tommy Malone, right? The Braves were hurting for rotation depth during the course of the summer. They were having a really hard time solidifying the back of that rotation. They were running Kyle right out there. He was struggling for a while before his stats on paper towards the end of the year looked better. I don't think he pitched any better, in my opinion. Agreed. But they traded for Tommy Malone who has been this type of target for what seems like forever. He, especially while he still had options left. Someone who you can plug in, cutters, change-ups, throws a bunch of strikes and just gives you a perfectly acceptable start.
3: You're able to seven most years.
2: Yeah. <laughs> and so the, the Orioles in exchange for Malone ended up getting A.J. Graffanino, who yeah Ben mentioned is Tony's son, uh, and Greg Cullen. And so is interesting. He's been a scout like you know he's Tony Graffanino's son so scouts have known about him for a really long time he went to high school here in the Phoenix area and was in that like does someone want to pay him enough to buy him out of his commitment to Washington or is he going to go to school type thing he was he was in that realm while he was in high school here in Phoenix and he ended up matriculating to UW and didn't really do anything for his first two years statistically and then he had an injury shortened junior year and only played like 30 games. And then he had injuries in pro ball as well. And then of course we had COVID. So he's got like a very limited statistical track record. Yeah. But the statistical track record of late is pretty strong. He's older now. I think he's 23. Yep. Right. And I think Cullen is too. Cullen is also in this sort of boat where he's smaller school. I think it's niagara university i don't know if it's niagara university or university at niagara or whatever they're the purple eagles and he's also 23 and these are just the types of guys who if mike elias in baltimore and the system is structured the way it was in houston they're not going to sign any minor league free agents and guys like this are just going to be allowed to sink or swim early next year at high a and then be pushed probably after a month if they hit to double a like These are the types of older hitters, senior sign types like Josh Rojas. Taylor Jones is another good one. Uh, right. Lots of types of guys who you could see from those days in Houston where there's a vacuum created at the upper levels because the team doesn't like to sign minor league free agents.
3: It's not clear to me whether it's frugality or actually just an efficiency to find out whether your prospects can hit earlier.
2: This extends back to the Lunau days in St. Louis where – there are just very few minor league creations, and I think it's yeah. I'm not totally sure which of the two it is. It's probably a combination of both, right? But yeah, it is. A, it is also a way of creating artificial prospect value sometimes by like pushing these guys pretty quickly and even over small smaller ish samples if they're performing like other teams who use a model driven like point of view is for evaluating some of these prospects are more apt to like be interested in in guys like this and you can see man who's like the twins traded for Randy Cesar at one point right like they are that type of hitter and Graff especially, and maybe it's just because I've got a little bit more background with him because he did go to high school here. Yeah. You know, they're interesting, both of these guys, and have track records recently of hitting, but they're limited just because of the sample size and because COVID wiped away uh, all of 2020. And so they're going to get an opportunity to play in Baltimore, and they're just sort of, they're lottery tickets, But and like a lot of the guys we're about to talk about, it's just this specific type of lottery ticket is interesting. They're not sexy tools guys. They just have strong bat-to-ball performance of late.: This
3: is a heck of a deal for the Orioles, huh? I mean, they probably paid Tommy Malone 200k. Maybe tops. He signed a one-year 800K contract, and then they traded him before the deadline. Yeah. Yeah, and they got two, like, not great prospects, but reasonable prospects that have a 20 percent chance of turning into something somewhat useful.
2: Right, something like that, right? They'll be on the honorable mention section of the Orioles list as older shots in the dark who have the best chance of succeeding in Baltimore just by virtue of the fact that they're going to have an opportunity to to play, and we'll see what happens. The best prospect who was one of these
3: players to be named later from the last week— is Junior Perez? He's the one I had borderline heard of, and okay. that I saw him on one of your lists.
2: Right? Yeah, uh, I think he's he's probably the only guy who has been on like the main section of a list who changed teams over the last week. Junior Perez was in the Jorge Mateo deal that sent Mateo from Oakland to San Diego. This is, I think, the first one where someone was just like, what's wrong with us doing a player to be named later? And they did it. And I did know this one shortly after the deal happened, but you just never know if the player knows. And I just think it's super weird to, when like the players find out on social media or because of, you know, a trade rumors post that cites yeah. whoever tweeted that they've been traded. And so I kind of don't break weird, like who cares if I break junior prizes, the prospect in a deal? Like, it doesn't matter. But I did publish the YouTube video <laughs> of my in-person looks from him in 2019. He was on one of the two Padres at IZL teams last year. He hit 268, 350, 512 with 11 dingers, 14 doubles in like 51 games. He's a pretty physical guy for 19 year old. He's listed as a center fielder on his, you know, minor league player page, but he's gonna play one of the outfield corners and not center. Relatively short to the ball with power. Swing is a little bit grooved. There's not like great bat control there, but he's got pretty decent play coverage. He had eleven steals last year as well. I don't you know, speed is not a long term tool here for this guy, in my estimation, but he's not like hyper slow. You know, he's not A base clogger. So I've got a 40 plus future value on him, which is, hey, this is not a great profile. It's corner outfield, right handed hitting, but the early track record of hitting is pretty strong. My visual evaluation is that, yeah, this guy's got a chance to have like average hits, maybe above. Same goes for the power. So there's a chance that this guy is an everyday player. That's what the plus is for. It's not a great profile, but the plus part of the future value indicates that, hey, this guy's got some upside. So He's gonna be one of the better prospects in Oakland system coming up here this offseason because their system is not good. <laughs> and
3: um I liked the pause there to figure out what word to use.
2: You know, the the Padres got a speedy utility guy. Like what do you think of what do you think of Mateo based on what you know, they used him in center field and yeah. he hadn't played before and he pinch ran a bunch?
3: I don't really get it. He's pretty young still. He's twenty five, it looks like. Yeah, I guess he'll next year will be his age twenty-six season. I just don't think they need this guy.
2: They've taken shots like this. Like I've got a 40 on Mateo. I just think he's a bench piece. He's got elite speed, and that's kind of it. He's never really taken to the various infield spots that he's been tried at by the Yankees and then the A's, and typically guys like this just move to center field and no one made the move with this guy until he was twenty-four, twenty-five. And uh, he just got squeezed out of the the second base picture in Oakland, which was pretty bleak. It was like Barreto, who they also traded, Mateo, Tony Kemp, Chad Pinder, sort of in that that mix. Yeah, Sheldon Noisy, I thought would be, and you know they never really gave him a sh- an opportunity for whatever reason. They know more about that situation than we do, just because Noisy was at the the alternate site.
3: Right. Clearly, they weren't that keen on playing him because they were. Yeah. They were obviously very hard up for second base.
2: So he's out of options now, is Mateo. So I don't know. He's. I think he's going to be tough to roster.
3: Yeah. It's not as though they don't have a fourth outfielder. You know? Mm. like
2: What do you think the chances are that, I mean, they've lost Abraham El Monte,
3: But theoretically, Greg Allen fills this role pretty right.
2: well. Yeah, Greg Allen, Mateo, Jorge Onya is a different type of player. Tommy Pham, I guess, is a sneaky non-tender candidate.
3: That's... Possible. It wouldn't shock me if they non-tendered him, just given the way that this offseason's going, but that would be a stranger non-tender to me than any we've seen so far, either non-tenders or options not picked up or anything like that. Okay. I think I'd much rather have FAM for probably $7 million, $8 million, than Brad Hand for 10 for example. And that's the one that everyone's pointing at.
2: Yeah, I guess so. I quite like Hand and just have a premium on pitching and just having watched fam late last year i i, I don't know I, I maybe he wasn't healthy but i'm not sure that he's gonna be healthy anymore and i mean it's terrible what happened to him yeah,
0: there's
3: certainly no guarantee he'll ever be healthy just that's kind of who tommy fam is but
2: he was also stabbed like i don't know like of all the weird variables impacting how you to evaluate be clear, all this
3: completely <laughs> stuff. blamelessly when someone was <laughs> leaning on his car and he said hey why are you leaning on my car and they just stepped off the car and stabbed him where was he? Was he in
2: the gas lamps when that happened? Do we I know where he was? I believe so.
3: Oh man, I saw the story and I was like, "What happened here?" And then immediately saw the follow up that a guy had just stabbed him because he was leaning on Fam's car. And how unlucky can you get?
2: So yeah, look for Junior Perez to be. It you know, was in the A Z L last year, and then had nothing in 2020. So how Oakland chooses to develop him, I don't know. He might be an extended, and then get sent to whatever. Short season type thing there ends up being, if there is one, they might decide to push him to to low A whenever that starts, if it starts. Next March and April are going to be difficult for teams from a, you know, COVID is going to be around, and then people in baseball are telling me that they think that next year's spring training, quote unquote, is going to be an awful lot like it was this past summer where the teams just get warmed up at their home stadiums.
3: Are the A's aggressive uh, promoters in the same way that some teams are? Man,
2: I don't think so. They haven't had quite as much to to work with lately. Enough that I'd be able to tell you if what, what. Got it. Like some of it's not their fault. Some of it is like all these guys have been hurt. Like Puck and Caprellian and and Dalton Jeffries and even Lazardo has been hurt a bunch and.
3: They drafted Kyler Murray, so right, like the Kyler guy Murray guy thing totally
2: stinks. Man, I mean, I, I've i enjoyed watching Kyler Murray every weekend, but I'd still rather he be playing baseball.
3: Oh, I mean, I don't know if I agree with that. I I think he's very fun to watch play football.
2: So, yeah, like, it'll be interesting to see what all the teams do with these types of guys. But, yeah, Junior yeah. Perez, is he's got some profile. He's the best guy we're going to talk about
3: today. Yeah, it's interesting given the basically franchise crunch that's going on with the minor league contraction what you're going to do with a guy like this who they just don't know that much about yet. Right? It's not possible to know that much about him yet based on his, I don't know, 500 plate appearances of organized ball, of organized professional ball.
2: And I don't even know how they went about scouting this guy. Like, did they just use a previous,
3: like, Got to be their 2019 look, I suppose. Yeah, like, what else could they do?
2: Going off their 2019 looks, there wasn't enough time, in most cases, for the minor leaguers to get to Arizona and get underway in a substantive way in late February, early March before the shutdown. Like, it just didn't happen. Some stuff happened in the Dominican Republic or guys were who didn't go home to their Latin American country of origin and stayed on the complex for a while. Maybe they were seen working out, depending on the uh, the venue. But yeah, it's it's fascinating to see how some of this stuff shook out. Then the Padres, because they made so many deals around the deadline, also traded away Dylan Coleman to Kansas City to complete the Trevor Rosenthal deal, and they got Matt Waldron from Cleveland as part of that you know massive Quantrill, etc. Josh Naylor, Clevenger, that whole trade. Yeah. So let's talk about Dylan Coleman. Dylan Coleman was part of those really good Missouri State Bears college teams of recent times that had like Jake Berger who was a first rounder by the White Sox had multiple Achilles injuries another A's prospect who is kind of struggling out of the gate in um, Jeremy Ironman from Missouri State. Coleman was on those teams he was like one of the the better starters on the team. he projects as a reliever in pro ball. And he's had some injury stuff, and his velo is down. So he's a reclamation project for Kansas City. He's already 24. Big guy, 6'5", 230. It's like a good three-quarters arm slot. You know, it's that tailing fastball slider type of relief prospect. At his peak, he was sitting in the mid-90s, 93, 96. Touch a 7, maybe an 8, although I never saw an 8. I was in Springfield a couple times to see Missouri State and saw Coleman. Mm-hmm. And he looked good. Uh, I think he's been a 40 future value at some point, but has been off the list for the last year or so because of injury and a reduction and stuff. So interesting reclamation project there for Kansas City.
3: Yeah, that's the kind of thing where if he works out, then they can sell him for something much better, basically. Because he's already 24. I suppose he'll be part of the next competitive Royals team, but seemed optimistic.
2: He was drafted in twenty. 20- 18 I want to say yeah it looks like it and so I'm trying to think let's see 18 so yeah it's going to be a short developmental window before he's rule 5 eligible but I'm not sure what scouting is going to be like in 2021 so evaluating guys for the 2021 rule 5 is probably going to be pretty difficult and there are some other players who were traded at the deadline Julio Frias with the Diamondbacks who was in the Starling Marte deal was rule 5 eligible last year even though he was, you know, a 21-year-old lefty who was touching 97 in the Penn League. But it's just so super-duper raw, and it just seems like the D-backs have more time than usual to get that guy ready. Yeah, because Very unlikely
3: that someone's going to take that this year. Yeah.
2: So let's talk about Matt Waldron. Waldron's one of those guys who I know relatively little about compared to some of the other guys we're going to talk about. He was with Cleveland. He's also 24, was Signed as an undrafted free agent in 2019 and then went to... Um, Interesting. Yeah, then went to... Uh, he pitched across two levels and his numbers are pretty good. He struck out 57 guys and walked just four <laughs> in 45 innings. Wow. All I know about him is, is that he doesn't throw all that hard. He's like 89 to 92. It is of that three quarters tailing action variety mm-hmm. based on what I've got on him. And yeah, his numbers are just super duper crazy, and like that's it. Like that's sort of where I'm at with this guy. He's 24 and was at the lower levels of the minor leagues, and doesn't send any flares up in the air because of the velocity. It's just the numbers here are absolutely ridiculous, and it's not even the type of guy who, if I if I were to look at the spin axis of the ball or the spin rate or some of those other fastball traits that we've talked about that help it play up, I don't see any of that stuff going on either. So. I don't know what's going on here, but this guy's numbers are pretty
3: goofy. Yeah. Presumably, the, with another year, we'll see. He'll either keep it up or not keep it up, and that'll reveal a little bit more about him. It's going to help a lot to have him in a reasonable level as well, instead of you know being way old for his level. Because it looks like in 2019, he was in low A.
2: Like in at, real time, yeah. I'm pulling up a video of this guy just to have a look at what it is live on uh, air before we move on. But Yeah. Very fascinating to see how this shakes out. And again, this guy's now in a system that is loaded with all sorts of guys. But there's t- the timeline on someone like this who was he was a, what a senior sign out of Nebraska, I think. Again, in 2019. So the fact that he was signed relatively recently means yeah. that there are still a couple years to go before he's got to be put on the uh, the 40-man.
3: Yeah, two years. So as kind of a basically a an evening out tool. Because the Quantrill trade was a little bit, I mean, Quantrill trade, I don't, I don't even know who the trade is anymore. <laughs> the Clevenger like, trade, It's the right? Clevenger trade, but it's just so, there's so many players in it. It's the the fantasy trade that you always try to make where you send your your bench for their star. Is there
2: anyone from that trade, since, we, I mean, we said we were going to talk about some of these trades in general. Yeah. Is there anybody from that trade who you think, now that they're on a new team, has, like, who you're interested in their development now moving forward? Because that's why I mentioned Quantrill first, because I'm kind of interested to see what Cleveland does developmentally with him.
3: I always want Josh Naylor to be better than he is. I don't know that he's going to be, but I think he makes a lot of sense for the Indians to find out.
2: Yeah. You know, the universal DH takes some pressure off of that profile, gives it a little bit more long-term value and flexibility, I think. So the way he looked in the playoffs was a level above what he looked like for the Padres. I think it's interesting that... A level team... above.
3: It's like six levels above. Yeah. <laughs>
2: <laughs> but, like, him and Fran as both are in a realm for me that is like, these guys are fine. They're perfectly acceptable everyday types who, who have some holes in their, in their game. They're not stars. They're the types of guys who, if they were ARB 3 or ARB 4...
3: Yeah, just get axed.
2: Yeah, maybe they're not even, maybe we're talking about them as non-tender candidates this offseason. But Cleveland seems to love these guys. Like, they've just band-aided over their outfield for a couple years now with players like this. So it's interesting to see that that the Padres want to do away with guys like that and try to accumulate stars. Whereas Cleveland wants to put a bigger puzzle together that includes pieces like this.
3: Yeah, I do think that Cleveland's strategy, which I think is not particularly optimal but maybe is for them given the constraints they put upon themselves is to basically go stars and scrubs to the point where other teams scrubs which are of little use to them are of value to the indians (sighs) there are a lot of teams who are like sloughing off people on the 40 man to make space and the indians are just never in danger of doing that because there's just such a paucity at the back end of their roster it's interesting like in theory the fact that so many teams are jam-packed with you know useful contributors who just can't fit on the 40. But when you're trading away Mike Clevenger to get them, then, like, what's the point? All
2: right, so let's move on. The Is there anybody else Padres-wise that I've missed here? I don't think so. At All right, like so everyone. the last couple guys, the Rays traded Rodolfo Sanchez to the Phillies to complete a deal for Edgar Garcia. Edgar Garcia was not on the Rays' playoff rosters. He was at the Phillies' alternate site when... He was traded. He was a 40 future value guy for me that was probably a little bit above where he should have been. I saw him as like mid-90s plus slider, just a lock to be a good middle reliever, above the tier of like up-down guys who get sent back and forth between AAA and the big leagues during their their option years. So I was a little heavy on Garcia, but the Rays just needed bodies at one point during the summer, and the Phillies had the best video Early on, during the alt site system, before there was even an agreement in place, teams could watch the Phillies alt site broadcast if they, you know, they could find a way to do it. Trust me, because I did it. And so, like, you could watch Garcia pitch there, and presumably get data. There was nothing stopping teams from saying, "Hey, oh, you're interested in Garcia? Like, all right, well, here's what the data has been like at the alt site camp." And so now the Rays have sent Rodolfo Sanchez to Philly to complete that deal. He's been in the honorable mention section of the Rays list for the last two years. He's now Rule 5 eligible, but probably won't get popped because nobody has seen him. He's small, 5'10", really athletic, up to 95. He's just a, a maybe, like, a, again, like Julio Frias, as I just mentioned. You can kind of hide him because he hasn't been seen. Even though he's Rule 5 eligible, he's not, like, a risk to be lost. He's just a maybe relief prospect who the Phillies now have an abnormal amount
3: of time to kind of develop. And presumably for the Rays, there's just so much clog at the top of their system that it was going to be difficult for him to weave his way through, as it were. Yep. So I I totally see why they did that. It's just how else were they going to uh, find this guy time? It is weird that they did it for Edgar Garcia, who's kind of a—he was a reliever who couldn't make the Phillies this year. Right, right. That's not what you love to see.
2: And it's also interesting that the one of the other guys who didn't make the Phillies is Christopher Sanchez, who is 23, maybe 24 at this point, was another hard-throwing reliever who the Phillies got from Tampa in a deal at the time that was like, oh, the Phillies got someone who's almost certainly going to help their bullpen next year while the Rays get rid of somebody who they don't really have room for. And Sanchez, it took him a little while. and I don't know if he had COVID or if he had visa issues, but got to the all-site camp late if I remember correctly, mm-hmm. and just never did anything, just never again. The Phillies' bullpen needed help desperately, and it seemed like this guy was a logical piece to do that, and it just never came together for him. So,
3: Yeah, the Phillies' bullpen needed help is the understatement of the year. That was one of the worst bullpens for a playoff contending team I've ever seen.
2: And again, some of that was bad luck, right? Like, Yeah, a lot of it that, was bad luck. Right, like David Robertson had never, ever been hurt. He'd been a tank for the Yankees. And then across two seasons with Philly, didn't throw a single inning. And then you had Sir Anthony Dominguez, and they should have just done Sir Anthony Dominguez's surgery sooner. But I still don't think he pitches in 2020, even if the first day he's hurt, they go, yeah. all right.
3: They got very unlucky, but yeah. it's just crazy that they got that unlucky. This guy still didn't break the roster. And I mean, the Rays just needed him. They just needed bodies.
2: The mistake, I think, was the Segura deal. Like, it's you non-tender Cesar Hernandez to kind of make room for Segura, whereas... All of Segura money should have just been, like, thrown at relievers.
3: Yeah. Again, like, it's easy to say that in retrospect, given that, like you said, their two projected best relievers just didn't pitch this year. That's tough.
2: And then there are two guys I want to talk about yet. The last player to be named later who moved is the one who I know the least about of all the guys we've just spoken about, and it's Ronnie Simone or Simon. I actually don't know how to pronounce his last name, but this is an infielder who the Cubs traded to the Diamondbacks as the player to be named later in the Andrew Chafin deal from the deadline. Chafin's just a good bullpen lefty. Super durable, really good breaking ball, incredible mustache most of the time. He's just a good bullpen lefty. He's absolutely fine as coming out of the bullpen as your the best lefty in the pen. Yeah, then the Cubs traded some let's say Simone for now. Yeah. two-year two-year DSL guy. The second year in the DSL, he was 19 and had really good numbers. He's a switch hitter. He's not as physical and, and lacks the kind of power that you'd expect someone who's 19 and therefore on the mature end of the DSL but pretty good field to hit from both sides and viable defensively on the infield probably not a shortstop but second base third base there's some people who think he can play shortstop so it's just you know advanced hit tool maybe some of that is caricatured by the fact that he was a 19 year old in in the DSL but by all visual accounts this is a switch hitter with some advanced field to hit. He has the uh,
3: the stat line of a guy who is just way too good for his level. Yeah. Where, you know, you walk as much as you strike out, run a bad up near 400, run a huge ISO. That's the classic, like, we just don't know anything about this guy because he is not playing as baseball players who is as good as he is.
2: Yeah, and going through, you know, like, I flag guys in the DSL who performed statistically just to ask around roundabout. And so these notes I'm giving you on Ronnie Simone are – like about a year old, nine between like 10 and 12 months old, probably. Yeah, that's and,
3: probably the best you can do.
2: And he didn't make the Cubs list, like based on, I asked about him because, mm-hmm. you know, I asked guys about you know, Hendrick Pinango and some of the other Rafael Morel, right? Like some of these other Cubs guys who were down there. And so, you know, I asked about this guy too, and it wasn't enough to stick him on the list, but I did have notes on him. So I figured I'd dump him now. And then the last guy I want to mention is, Jason Vossler, who wasn't traded as a player to be named later, but the Giants did sign to a big league deal, right? I think they signed it to a big league deal. Uh, Yeah. So the Giants have been doing this now for the last couple of years, basically since the new regime has been in place, where they are cycling through upper level, older guys who can't quite make the roster. They get squeezed off to see if they can find something. They've taken some of these these guys back in trade as well, and it's how they've got yastrzemski and i think it's probably why they acquired jalen davis from the twins as part of the uh sam dyson trade which wow twins the dyson trade was rough for them yeah for a lot of different reasons but they gave up a lot for a guy who is never gonna play baseball again based on the information that we have so let's talk about vosler another small school cold weather college bat went to northeastern then hitting the minors in the Cubs system. Struck out a bunch, but hit for power. It's a lefty stick. Third base, first base. Has gotten heavier the last couple of years, and it's really just first base DH now, in my opinion. Strikes out a lot. Walks a bunch. He has plus power. It's like a three true outcomes lotto ticket. And I don't know. Who knows? There are other teams who I know have liked this guy. How did he end up with the Padres? I'm forgetting now. Rowan Wick. That's the trade. Uh. So the Padres traded Wick. To the Cubs for Vosler At the time, Wick was, this was, you know, going on his third org at that point. Conversion arm.
3: Rowan Wick is the ultimate, you talk yourself into this, and then he pitches and you talk yourself out.
2: Well, he had a, he had a pretty good season for at least the, the beginning part of 2020, Wick had a good...
3: He's actually been, he was good in 2019 for the Cubs too. It's just, when you watch him pitch, it just feels like the other shoe's going to drop. He doesn't know where the ball's going really it seems to me, from watching him.
2: I was skeptical of him at one point. He was on prospect lists as like, hey, just so you know, this is a conversion arm who throws hard and maybe it works out. And now, I think in 2020, the Cubs changed his pitch usage a little bit. I think he's one of the several guys who's throwing more cutters now. Yeah, kind of gave him a cutter. And the curveball usage is up. Slider has been scrapped. Cutter usage is up. Fastball usage is down. And had like a semi, you know, 17 innings, take from that what you can, but had a 2-6-7 FIP, traded Vossler to the Padres, and he just couldn't crack their roster, and now, you know, they kind of lost him for for nothing to the Giants. So watch Jason Vossler next year. What do we think of the Giants? Let's talk about the Giants for a second, because they're one of the few teams who I think might actually spend money this offseason and have some payroll flexibility. Who, who of the guys on their team, who are late bloomers, potentially, do you think have a chance to actually be real?
3: Like, can I count Yastrzemski? You can count Yastrzemski. He's 30. Oh, yeah. I, I think Yastrzemski is real. Me too. Like, right now. All right.
2: So how about Solano? Uh,
3: No. Solano's been pretty good
2: now for a couple
3: years. He has been. He's He's been good for as long as Yastrzemski has been good.
2: Donovan Solano... Was with the Marlins, then was with the Yankees briefly in 2016, then didn't play in the big leagues at all, 17 or 18. In 81 games with the Giants in 2019, he hit 330, 360, 456. That's a 116 adjusted runs created. Plus, you know, he was a one and a half war player and then was a one war player this year.
3: Yeah, I just like that profile of powerless guy who's getting it done to the 400 BABIP is, is tough. I think he needs to be, he needs to not decline. He's 32. Actually, he's going he's to be playing to be next year at 33. And he also needs to provide defensive value, I think, to make this project as a bat that you're going to want to carry.
2: Yeah, looking at the peripherals in the BABIP, I think you've probably convinced me on that. All right, how about Alex Dickerson?
3: Yeah, I mean, depending on what you want out of him. I, platoon, basically. Yeah, exactly. If you think he's a platoon guy who hits righties and probably isn't good enough to bat against lefties, then yeah, I I think he can definitely be that.
2: How about Austin Slater?
3: He is the one that I'm the most unsure about.
2: I never bought it. Neither him nor Mac Williamson. I put a 40 on Slater when he was last prospect eligible, which would have been 2018. Projected above average bat to ball, but below average game power. This is one of those guys who's had trouble lifting the baseball historically. Here are his year-over-year ground ball rates since 2017. 61%. 63%, 52%, 63%, 52%, and then in 2020, 39.5%. So maybe there's been a change here to the swing. If there has been, it's not something that I picked up visually.
3: He hit 25 ground balls this year. I'd, I'd uh...
2: <laughs> It's a smaller sample, right? Yeah. Like So that's part of it too. But if there was a mechanical tweak, I watched a lot of the Giants towards the end of this year as they were kind of fighting for that last playoff spot, which that last day of the season, I thought was kind of robbed of them by the umpiring in that game. But I didn't notice... I watched a lot of Austin Slater when he was in the upper minors, the fall league, etc. And I didn't pick up on a swing change if there was one, which doesn't mean there wasn't one.
3: Yeah, it just—you can't really say much from an abbreviated twenty twenty. Watch it.
2: It's a thing to watch. Like, if there's been a change, now we've two years in a row where the ground ball rate has dropped. It's worth kind of keeping an eye on going into next year. Mine. It's opinion.
3: worth keeping an eye on, but he's not playable at two point three ground ball fly ball rate, like a fifty two point three percent ground ball rate. That's not gonna do it. But if he can get the ball in the air, then it's more interesting. If he can't, he's an outfielder who's just doesn't do anything well enough to be amazing. I mean, that's a fine fourth outfielder, I think. But I just don't think he's—I don't think he's as good as Dickerson.
2: Well, I'd rather have Dickerson just because of the handedness. I think that yeah, he's just yeah. more playable. He fits with Dickerson like to some extent. Yastrzemski just plays every day, and then you've got like Dickerson, Belt, Rough. Vossler, Slater, like these are platoon E pieces that kind of fit together in some respect. I don't know. I think that the Giants remain interesting. I like the way that they've gone about the early stages of the rebuild by cycling interesting older guys through the big league roster, trying to make some changes to some of them that is either going to make them tradable or some of them have enough like roster flexibility and years of control left that they might. Be around the next time the Giants are competitive, and they kind of were already in 2020. So, you know, yada yada yada. I'm con- I'm concerned about. I don't think Luis Basabe is anything. I don't. You know, Steven Duggar. I I did for a while, and that's not working out. And Chris Shaw, you know, not working out. But you got to cycle through a bunch of these guys. I think give them yeah. an opportunity to play that they wouldn't have anywhere else. And who knows what you might find.
3: I like their plan. I think yeah. this makes a lot of sense. And even if Solano comes to nothing and Slater comes to nothing. They hit, I think, enough to justify their plan just on Dickerson and Yastrzemski alone. They have the playing time. Like you said, Like, why not use it this way? That's why I don't quite get just Brandon Crawford continuing to kind of soak up playing time there. Longoria to a lesser extent, but...
2: I'll give uh, Giants fans one last nugget and say that Gregory Santos is going to be on my top one hundred this offseason.
3: <laughs> oh, that is very interesting.
2: But with that, we have gone for about forty minutes on players that we name later. <laughs> yeah. So named
3: them. They're all named now. They're they now, now players who have been named.
2: Look out for off season prospect coverage. All the all the org lists are going to start rolling out here in short order, folks. And for Ben clemens I'm Eric Longenhagen. Thanks for listening to another edition, another segment of graphs Audio.
0: This has been Fangraphs Audio. If you liked what you heard and feel like giving back, you can make a donation over at Fangraphs.com donate. I can also tell you that a Fangraphs membership makes a great holiday gift if you're still searching for ideas. Thank you for listening. We'll talk to you next week.